The Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ, that there's nothing prophetically that needs to take place for Jesus to come and catch up his church. There's all kinds of prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for the second coming. But for the rapture, for the catching up of the church, nothing has to be fulfilled. It could happen today if God so chooses. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're continuing our study of the book of Daniel. Yesterday, we began a study in chapter 7, that section of Scripture in which Daniel begins to prophesy of major events that will take place not only in the Old Testament days, but of contemporary events as well. There's much detail to cover here, so we'll be spending several days in this chapter. And as we pick up today, Pastor Brogy notes that secularists and historians denied the existence of a king of Babylon whose name was Belshazzar. But as it turns out, the biblical account was indeed accurate, and it was the secularists and historians who were proven wrong. For many years, the critics laughed at Daniel. They said it's inaccurate, we know all about Nabonidus. We have no historical record of Belshazzar. Therefore, the book of Daniel is in error. Again, the critics want to attack it because if, it true, if it's true, it has huge implications. But then they found this little Babylonian steel, archaeology, and they found this guy's name, Belshazzar. Now, Nabonidus is king number one. But if you know anything about Chaldean history, you know he was not a man who liked to stay at home. He often engaged in battles throughout the empire, but he also, throughout the empire, was involved in a lot of great archaeological projects. And so he had a co-regent, his son, Belshazzar. And if you remember, the night that Belshazzar sees the handwriting on the wall and Daniel interprets it for him, what does Belshazzar do? He makes Daniel third in the kingdom. Why? Because Nabonidus is one, Belshazzar is two, and Daniel becomes three. Look, the critics of this world may have the latest word, but they don't have the last word. The word of God has never, ever been proven wrong. So Belshazzar, he's going to reign for a total of 15 years. And on that night, of course, um, when Daniel sees the handwriting on the wall, he's about 65 years old. So in the first year, if you want to put out in the margin 553 B.C., that's a firm date, not just biblically, but in secular history. It is a firm date. That was the first year of this king. Furthermore, we're told, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Now, this dream and the visions that accompanied it apparently happened to Daniel at night as he lay on his bed. Now, according to the Bible, there are two specialized ways that God would sometimes communicate through his, to his people, through dreams and visions. Moses wrote in the Torah, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. So God, and you can read it throughout the first five books, spoke in visions and dreams. And when you study Scripture, you, you discern that there's a difference between a vision and a dream. A dream was given when someone was asleep. A vision was given to a person while he was awake, but it seemed like you were asleep. Well, on this particular occasion, while he's on his bed, he has both dreams while he's asleep and visions while he's awake. And of course, the 
question that often comes when you come to a portion of Scripture like this is, does God still give visions and dreams today? Well, let me begin with a general principle. If you feel like you had a dream or a vision from God, more than likely it's indigestion and not uh, inspiration, all right? But having said that, I would never limit God as to what He can do. In the book of Acts, the second chapter, in the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes the prophet Joel. Listen to this. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. When in the last days? When did the last days begin? According to Peter, he said, this is what Joel said, what you're witnessing right in front of your eyes, said would take place in the last days. It began on the day of Pentecost. Why? Because the Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ that there's nothing prophetically that needs to take place for Jesus to come and catch up His church. There's all kinds of prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for the second coming. But for the rapture, for the catching up of the church, nothing has to be fulfilled. It could happen today if God so chooses. Now, I believe we're not only in the last days, but we are in the latter times, another term, one that Daniel uses, one that Paul uses to describe the last of the last days. In either case, since the day of Pentecost, God could give and has given dreams and vision. And it was especially important before the Scripture was completed. Before the Bible was written, even in the early years of the church, God used different people as conduits of direct revelation. You say, well, does God normally speak in dreams and visions? No. It is very rare. Most of what Israel learned, God wrote through a prophet, and God inspired that writing. Occasionally, He gave them a dream or a vision that was incorporated in that writing, but it is very, very rare. Even miracles in the Bible, they only happen on the great events of human history. Moses was the first one in the Holy Scripture to do a miracle. All the men who lived before him, Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Isaac, none of those guys did miracles. Centuries went by until a miracle was done by Moses and shortly after Joshua as he carried him to the promised land. And hundreds of years went by and there were no miracles. Until Elijah and Elisha came on the scene and then God had another cluster of miracles. And hundreds and hundreds of years went by until Christ and his apostles came on the scene. And there's another cluster of miracles that is in the future during the coming of the great tribulation. But my point is, is that dreams and visions are not seen uh, consistently through biblical history. They are rare. And you shouldn't tell God how He should speak to you. And let me just say this parenthetically, you are never ever told in the Bible to seek a vision. But you are commanded in the Bible to study the Word of God. And even if someone were to have a vision today, and in my humble opinion, I only know one man in the last maybe 200 years who I respect, who I think had a legitimate vision from God. But if God gives a vision today, it will not be extra-revelational, nor will it take away from the Word of God, as we will see later in our study of Revelation. Most of the people I meet who claim, well, God gave me this dream, and let me tell you it. They're either A, suffering from indigestion, or B, and more often than not, they are on an ego trip. 
And they want you to know how spiritual they are because God gave them this dream or this vision. Now, while I have never had a dream or a vision, I had the experience and have the experience that Daniel had where I'm laying on my bed at night and I've been studying a passage of Scripture and all of a sudden God gives me not a a new revelation because no new revelation is given. He gives me an illumination. He'll take a passage I've been studying and he brings to the forefront of my mind and it just clicks. Oh, I see it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit serves as our teacher. What do I do? I get up and I write down what God's showing me. Many times it happens when I'm out running and I'm just pouring over. I take a break. I study for about six hours on Wednesday. Then I go running. I come back and study another four hours. And oftentimes it's on that run when the scripture is running through my mind that God gives me some insight. Well, Daniel saw a dream and vision in, visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. In other words, what follows is the essence of this dream and these visions. That tells us he's not giving us every detail. He's giving us the essential points. He's giving us the heart, the summary of the message, which tells me every single word is very, very weighty. Every sentence is chock full of truth. We are getting the distilled essence according to the opening verse. So that's when Daniel dreamed. Secondly, let's think about what Daniel dreamed, what he dreamed. Notice now verses 2 and 3. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. Now, Daniel is the first apocalyptic writer in the Scripture. And if you know anything about apocalyptic literature, it's filled with symbols and with signs. And so Daniel in this dream will communicate it using a lot of signs and symbols. And he gives three very clear pictures. The first picture concerns the symbolism of the sea, the symbolism of the sea. We read here in verse 2, I was looking. Again, he's moving now from the third person to the first person singular because these are dreams he had. I was looking in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So first, what does the great sea refer to? Now, if you've studied the Bible, then you know that whenever God speaks of geography or directions in the Bible, it's always in reference to Israel. For instance, north or south, east or west is always north or south or east or west of Israel. When I was a child, there was a map of the world, and of course, they had the United States right in the center. Well, if God were to lay a flat map of the world for us to see Israel would be in the center. Israel is the center of the world in God's eyes. And directions in the Bible are always given, both Old and New Testament, in reference to Israel. Well, what are the four seas that are generally mentioned in the Bible? Well, there's the Galilean Sea, there's the Red Sea, there's the Dead Sea, and then the Bible repeatedly refers to the Great Sea. Now, the Great Sea is not the Atlantic or the Pacific. In the Bible, of course, it's the Mediterranean Sea. Now, if you're using the NASB or the New King James, you will notice that great sea is in lower cases. Uh, That was an interpretive decision, but correct. They didn't put great sea in caps because they are not referring to a proper place. This is a figurative, a symbolic use of the great sea, and the text itself will bear that out. We do that sometimes in English. We'll say, well, you look at that great sea of people. That's a figurative, obviously, expression. Isaiah says in the 57th chapter, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet in its waters, toss up refuse 
and mud. Isaiah 17, 12 says, Alas, the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of nations who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waters. Or in the New Testament, in the Revelation, the 17th chapter, and he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So in these passages, the lost people of this world are compared to the roaring, pulsating seas. And so Daniel uses this term sea symbolically. And again, it will bear it out through the context because four beasts will come out of the sea. And the four beasts are not oceanic creatures, but kings or kingdoms of which come out of the mass of humanity. So there's the symbolism of the sea. Secondly, there's the working of the wind, the working of the wind. We read in verse 2, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So he mentions here the four winds of heaven, winds blowing from the four points of the compass, blowing, agitating this massive sea. Well, what do they stand for? Well, the four winds are used in Scripture as a picture of God's judgment. For instance, in Revelation 7 and verse 1, we read this, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind, no judgment should blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. So God uses some angels to restrain the four winds. And in Revelation 7, God is restraining, his he's restraining an evil force against his people, against 144,000 Jewish people. After the church is raptured, after the church is caught up, we're going to study in Revelation 7 that God is going to miraculously convert 144,000 Jewish people. And they're going to become the evangelists. And until they're converted and sealed so that no one can hurt them, God will protect them because He is going to use them. And so when we come to Daniel, the 10th chapter, we're going to say that there's an evil wind that blows and the evil hot breath is of the devil himself. When we come to the 10th chapter, some of you will never listen to the news in the same way. Some of you will never read your, your uh, computer page or newspaper in the same way. Why? Because you're going to see that different nations of the world have different fallen angels, evil angels that are working invisibly behind the scene. What Paul says in Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself, is energizing the sons of disobedience. And so we're told here in this symbolism of the sea, we're told something about the wind. But third, I want you to see the third picture, the birth of the beast, the birth of the beast. We're told in verse 3, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. So it's out of that turmoil, out of that unrest, that these four great beasts were coming up from the sea. And pictured here in his dream, spawned out of this sea of humanity, stirred up by the evil satanic winds behind it, come four great beasts that picture four successive empires. If you look in Daniel 7, 17, the Bible interprets itself. It tells us specifically what the four great beasts represent. Here it is on the screen. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings 
who will arise from the earth. So you can see he's using symbolism. He's not talking about the literal great sea, the Mediterranean. He's talking about the sea of humanity and the evil satanic forces that are behind the scenes and four great kings who will come. And if you were with us in our study of Daniel 2, then you will remember that we studied these four empires. And if you remember Daniel chapter 2, these four empires were represented by a great metallic man. Here it is pictured. Remember that guy? The head of gold, the arms and breasts of silver, and the belly and legs of brass and of iron, feet and then toes, part feet, part clay. Now, how many of you remember that from Daniel 2? All right, I just want to make sure. Some of you were starting to glaze over, and I was afraid I was losing you in the clouds of prophecy here. All right, in Daniel 2, he speaks of four great empires, not as beasts, but as a great metallic man. We didn't see them as a glittering statue. We saw him as a glittering statue, but not here. Here we see him in beast-like form. Why is that? Why is it necessary to even cover these kingdoms twice? One for emphasis... But understand what you discover in this chapter are some significant differences in these four coming kingdoms. The dream of chapter 2 was seen by a pagan king and interpreted by Daniel. The dream of chapter 7 is seen by Daniel and it's interpreted by an angel. The first vision is a picture of history as we see it, as man sees it. And God wants us to understand that. The second vision here in chapter 7 is history as God sees it. It's not a beautiful, glittering statue. It's four ferocious beasts. God just pulls back the veneer, and He wants you to see really what is in the heart of these world leaders. They are beastly people. All right, now that's the introduction to the vision. Still with me? All right, stay awake. Secondly, there's the information in the vision, and we'll just crack the door on this. The first part of the vision, Daniel tells us, deals with the nature of the nations. A beast lives by the law of tooth and claw, self-preservation, and so God now describes these four beasts in that way. First, he mentions the lion nature of Babylon. That's the first kingdom. Now, historically and biblically, the very first worldwide kingdom was Babylon. Now, Egypt was a a very important empire, but it was never worldwide. It was a localized empire. The very first worldwide empire in the history of man was Babylon, and God writes about it here in verse 4. The first was like a lion, and it had wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. So here's an artist's rendition of it in this picture. Uh, if you remember, we already studied in the second chapter. We looked at the uh, gates of Ishtar. Remember that? Some gates. I should have brought the picture to those. Uh, that were actually in Daniel's day, that he would have walked by on a regular basis, that have been supernaturally, I suppose, preserved by God, some that ISIS have not gotten. And uh, you see these gates with all these winged lions on it. And that doesn't surprise us. Different nations of the world, even today, use different animals to symbolize their nations. The symbol of Great Britain and Ethiopia is a lion. The symbol of Australia is a kangaroo. Uh, The symbol of India is either a three-headed lion or an elephant. The symbol of the United States is an eagle. And so in Daniel's day, different civilizations were pictured by different animals. And the winged lion picturing the first empire is clearly a symbol of Babylon for several reasons. First, the lion, of course, is the king of the beasts. 
and the eagle is the king of the birds. And so it corresponds to the head of gold, to the top of the uh, statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Second, both of Daniel's predecessors and his contemporary prophets used the picture of a lion and an eagle to picture the nation of Babylon. And again, because of the strength and the swiftness that this nation possessed. Jeremiah, who lived before Daniel, we're going to see Daniel the prophet reading the prophet Daniel, uh, Jeremiah, when we come to the ninth chapter. But Der Jeremiah said this, a lion has gone up from his thicket, and a destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. Remember Jeremiah? He preached to the southern two tribes after the kingdom split called Judah. And he said, there's a nation, and man, they're coming to get you, and you're not listening, and you would do well to listen. And so they come, and they come as a lion. Habakkuk 1.8 says this, speaking of Babylon, their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. Third, again, we know from archaeology that the symbol of Babylon was a winged lion. And then fourth, the changes that this beast represent perfectly picture what we studied of King Nebuchadnezzar in the fourth chapter. Let me refresh your memory. Remember when Daniel reviews it in the fifth chapter, he says of Nebuchadnezzar, I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind uh, was also given to it. So look at the description here. Go to the next slide there. There we go, Daniel 7, 4. Um, this is a picture of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. It says, a man was made to stand on two feet, and a human mind, the King James says, and the old American standard, the ASV says, a human heart, it's more literal to the Hebrew, I think a little better, is given to it. What is that picture? King Nebuchadnezzar in his mighty conversion. Remember Nebuchadnezzar when he reviews his kingdom in the fifth chapter in the 19th verse? It says, and because of the grandeur which he bestowed, God bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. So what does God do? He plucks this guy's wings. He humbles him. Remember that day? It's recorded in the fourth chapter. He's out there on his balcony. He's looking at this great place that he has built. And he says, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you, it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. So God plucked his wings. But if you remember the fourth chapter, after seven years, God converted him. You're going to meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Someone challenged me on that. They said, well, Pastor Carl, what if we don't meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? I said, then you'll meet him. <laughs> uh, on two feet. Oh, y'all are slow this morning. Come on now, stay with me. On two feet, he was able to walk again. And he's given a real live heart because he's converted. Now in verse 5, he moves from the lion nature of Babylon to the bear-like nature of Medo-Persia. Notice, and behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they said to it, arise, devour much meat. 
Now, this is not the Russian bear. Some guy on TV I saw a few months ago, and he, uh, he says, oh, yeah, the lion, that's Great Britain, and the bear, that's Russia, and this is happening in our day. And what an abuse of prophecy. And what a distortion of Scripture. God makes it clear who these kingdoms are. You can't lay contemporary idioms on them. Medo-Persia is pictured as a bear. And what a fitting symbol, because a bear is an animal of great strength. And this nation was fierce in its ability to fight. Put in the margin next to this, Isaiah 13, 17 through 18. Isaiah 13, let me read it to you. Behold, I am going to stir up the Medes against them, who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold, and their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity children. They were a fierce people, like a bear, no compassion whatsoever. They were hard on their victims, even the kids they slaughtered, and they had no pity on the pregnant women. And according to verse 5, this bear is pictured as raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth. And again, this is a lopsided picture of the Medes and the Persians. Now, we just read a prophecy from Isaiah that he wrote 150 years before it ever happened. He speaks of this nation, describes it vividly. He will also speak of another coming king, Cyrus, ever before he's even born. And he not only speaks of the king, he names the king. Cyrus is named ever before he's born. This is why the critics hate the Bible, because it is so precise. And so here's this bear. It's in a lopsided kingdom, so to speak. The Persians were stronger and greater than the Medes. But to come into power, they have to overthrow three nations. History records it. The Bible prophesied it. Lydia, Egypt, and ultimately Babylon. Now remember, this prophecy was given in the first year of the reign of King Belshazzar. At this time, Medo-Persia is no threat whatsoever. They're still a very weak nation, but in the next decade, they are going to grow. But God writes of it ever before it happens. And so God looks through the telescope of prophecy, and he says, Babylonian is, Babylonia is going down, and the Medes and the Persians are coming up. Now, this prophecy, as the prophecies that follow, are so incredibly precise that the critics say, that Daniel was not written in the 6th century B.C., but the 2nd century B.C. It was written after the fact because they are so incredibly precise, especially when we come to the 11th chapter. It is mind-blowing. Oh, it couldn't have happened before it happened after. Well, number one, they're going against what the Jews have taught for centuries they have always documented this book as the 6th century B.C., but when we come through 9, 10, and 11, I will show you why that is an impossible position to hold. But lay aside what I think, what Jesus thinks is the most important. And in Matthew, the 24th chapter, the 15th verse, he does not refer to Daniel as the historian, but as Daniel the prophet. To listen again to today's study from Daniel chapter 7, Use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program DAN8, God's Panorama of Future Events. This is actually a three-message series, so you may want to order programs DAN9 and DAN10 as well. 
Tomorrow we'll continue our look at the future through the prophecy of Daniel as we search the scriptures.